Well, as a couple of guys are passing out handouts, and as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 8, I wanted to ask a question. What's your favorite restaurant in Kalamazoo? Throw them out there. This is opportunity for restaurant recommendations also. Core Life, okay. What is it? Crow's Nest, all right. Blaze Pizza. Latitude 42. Burdick's, okay. Saffron, yes. Costco, yeah. $1.50 hot dogs. What else? Only six restaurants that you can eat at in Kalamazoo? What is it? La Pinata, yes. Urbelli's, yes, that is a favorite. We probably all have a favorite restaurant in Kalamazoo, but imagine if each of your favorite restaurants growing up, imagine if that restaurant was associated with a specific idol or a specific pagan deity, and you came to faith in Christ, and then you had to process through, how do I think about that, that thing that I once enjoyed, that thing that I once could go to, no problem, but it now I realize it's associated with something else. As we dig into 1 Corinthians 8 and part of 9 today, that's not that far off from the sort of dynamic that was being experienced in Corinth. If you guys remember back to our intro lesson in Corinth, when we were getting ready to just go through the kind of the, the geographical setting, if you remember city center, you look around from the middle of the city and you see on every corner is a different pagan temple representing a different false deity. And this passage in, in chapter 8, I'll, I'll admit as I was studying it, I, I took the initial approach that this is what I'd always heard, which is this is talking about Christians who went to the market and purchased meat that had once been sacrificed to idols. That does get talked about later, but specifically in verse 10 of chapter 8, we get a glimpse into what specifically was going on here. Chapter 8, verse 10 of 1 Corinthians, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So Paul has been going through this letter, really, and and point by point, addressing and refuting different errors that came to him from, one from a report, a verbal report, but then also from a letter that they'd written. And when he gets to this section, he's just, he's just kind of covered the issues that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, sexual immorality in the church, people saying that spirituality demanded a denial of things that God said were good. And then we get to this section, and you can almost picture him, he's looking at the letter on the one hand that says, the letter paired with the report that says, hey, the believers in Corinth, they're, uh, they're going to the pagan temples again, and they're participating in the feasts. And you can almost picture Paul just kind of like taking his glasses off and rubbing his eyes and saying, all right. Okay. And that's how verse 8 starts. 
Now concerning food offered to idols. We know that. And then he quotes, all of us possess knowledge. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So the Corinthians are professing to have this knowledge. They're aware of the truth, they say, and their awareness of the truth means what they're doing is fine. Now, Paul is eventually going to actually correct and clarify their knowledge. That's why he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But really interestingly, throughout the first part of this passage, he doesn't actually directly confront the issue that they're participating in as sin. Rather, he addresses, because they're going through and says, it's my right, it's my right, it's my right to be able to do this, it's my right to be able to go to the pagan temple. But he, he pauses, and before he says, that's actually not good, before he even does that, he, he kind of steps way back and says, all right, let's talk about rights and let's talk about how they're supposed to be used as Christians, even on those things that are morally neutral. And then he's eventually going to get to the point and say, and, and that issue is actually not morally neutral. But he spends quite a bit of time unpacking rights as a Christian and how we're supposed to use them. Before we jump into all that, though, I want to just hit a couple of quotations re- relating to historical context that I think is helpful. This one's from um, McDonald in uh, his First Corinthians commentary. In the ancient world, many meals of celebration took place in pagan temples to which many Jews and Christians were invited as citizens in that community. Another quote from him. The key issue that Paul is addressing here is whether Christians may or should be involved in eating meals offered to pagan idols in the pagan temples. And then another quote from uh, Gordon Fee. The significance of these meals, most likely they involved a combination of religious and social factors. This is just how you got together with everyone in the town. The gods, of course, were thought to be present since the meals were held in their honor and sacrifices were made. Nonetheless, the meals were also intensely social occasions for the participants. For the most part, the Gentiles who had become believers in Corinth had probably attended such meals all their lives. Indeed, such meals served as the basic restaurants in antiquity, and every kind of occasion was celebrated in this fashion. Kind of puts it in different perspective when we talk about meat sacrificed to idols and and what someone's really giving up. They're giving up what they've done their whole lives, but then they're realizing, wait a second, what we just talked about in main service, there's no God but one. I'm not actually worshiping a pagan deity when I go to the temple and enjoy a a social time together. Maybe I'll just show up late after they've done the whole like sacrificial ceremonial thing. I'll just, I'll just show up late, still be able to see all my friends. I'm not, I know I'm not worshiping a pagan deity. So what's the big deal? That's the context into which Paul's speaking. And, but again, he's going to zoom out and talk about rights and freedoms in general. And I think just as we go into this, thinking about different areas where we're faced with questions related to Christian freedom that require discernment, I don't think any of us are in this same context. I don't think any of us screw up going to pagan temples to worship regularly. But we definitely see clashes of Christian freedom when it comes to holiday practices and traditions. 
Christmas, maybe, Halloween, definitely, the consumption of alcohol, dancing, associations with certain music preferences, entertainment and recreational options, attending a certain concert, the, the list goes on, the sorts of things that aren't explicitly mentioned in Scripture, or Scripture mentions them to be areas of freedom, but how do we process through our rights, our freedoms as believers to participate in these things? That's going to be what we're going to dig into today, and we're going to see eight motivations to limit your Christian freedom. Eight motivations to limit your Christian freedom, and the first is a loving desire to build others up a loving desire to build others up. He already said that this quote-unquote knowledge in end of verse 1 puffs up, but love builds up. And then he talks about this knowledge of the truth. Look at 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, this is what they're saying, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Here Paul contrasts in verse 1 abused knowledge with sacrificial love. They're abusing knowledge, and that's contrasted with sacrificial love. And verse 2, as I mentioned earlier, hints at the fact that those in Corinth did not actually understand things as fully as they thought. The content of what was known is indeed true. The content of what was known is indeed true. That's your first blank. But it was partial. Chapter 10, verses 9 through 22 reveal that. I'm going to jump ahead a bit. Really, chapters 8 through 10 should be held closely together in our minds. So it's unfortunate we're going to have to break them up. But chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. I'll read it just so that we have it in front of us. For what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul is eventually going to land very clearly on the specific issue of attending pagan idol-worshiping meals and then clarify a major gap in their understanding. But he starts by addressing the very concept of a right and how even if something were morally neutral, that does not make it right to participate in it, potentially. So Paul directly addresses their flippancy towards attending pagan temples later, but he, he waits a while before he comes at it directly. So there was deficiency in the content of their knowledge, but there was greater deficiency in the application of that knowledge. What they were believing was true. They weren't, they weren't realizing the whole truth, but where the deficiency really lied was in their application. They were using their knowledge of the truth to puff, puff themselves up rather than to humbly build others up. And that's really the first motivation as we think about limiting our Christian freedom, not doing things that we otherwise could do. The first motivation is, to, is the loving desire to build others up. 
A question that you can loop back to when we break for discussion is, why is it essential for all knowledge to be lovingly applied for building up? And what does it reveal about your quote-unquote knowledge of the truth if it does not impact your love for God and others? Again, we'll, we'll loop back to that one. So the next motivation to limit your Christian freedom is seen in verse 7, and that is sensitivity to those less mature. Verse 7 reads, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. The Corinthians were behaving childishly regarding how they understood the belief the beliefs of other Christians. I was looking into this because I remembered learning something about it, about the, the age at which children become aware of the fact that someone they're talking to or some other person may be holding a false belief. And that's, some people say it's like four or five that children develop the ability to perceive that. Some say six or seven. But the point is, young children come to the realization eventually, oh, they might be believing something that's not true they might be believing something that's false. There's not that social awareness in a toddler. And interestingly, that's basically how the Corinthians were acting. They were acting so young, so immature in their faith, that they weren't able to process the fact. They weren't able to, to really think through the reality that not everyone is believing the same thing. Not everyone has the same level of knowledge on a given thing. And that led them to be really flippant and to disregard what their actions might do to someone that doesn't fully understand the knowledge that they're claiming to have. And this verse is helpful in illustrating three things. It, it shows that lack of understanding, former associations, and a weak conscience, all three of those things may contribute to a believer's inability to participate in an area of Christian freedom. Any three of those things, especially when combined, lack of understanding, former associations, a weak conscience, might limit a believer's ability to participate in an area of Christian freedom. Romans 14, 23, addressing a very similar situation, highlights the necessity, and I mean necessity, for faith and a clean conscience in order to engage in an activity as a believer. Paul writes there in Romans 14.23, and addressing the same issue, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In the case of 1 Corinthians 8.7, a person's conscience is actually defiled because of engaging in something that does not proceed from faith. Their conscience is defiled because they're doing something that doesn't proceed from faith. This highlights that even though, and this is a really important point that we have to think through anytime we deal with matters of conscience. Even though a non-functional conscience, or what the scripture talks about as a seared conscience, a conscience that doesn't send up warning bells when you're getting ready to do something, that doesn't make a sinful action okay. Like, if there's a sinful thing and your conscience isn't bothering you about it, it's not okay to do that thing. But to flip that around, if you have an overly sensitive conscience, or what Scripture talks about as a weak conscience, 
that can make a morally neutral issue, something that's neither right nor wrong, that can make that thing wrong for you to do. Because if what you're doing is not proceeding from faith, it's sin, Romans 14, 23. Which that really gets to the heart of why these Christian freedom issues and conscience issues are so important, and that's how we could be causing someone to stumble by doing something that for us isn't sin. If facing an issue of conscience, ask yourself, does my brother or sister have the same level of understanding of the truth? And what do I need to understand better? Are there, are there gaps in my understanding on this issue? And what do they need to understand? So both of these areas of understanding, growing in our knowledge, so that we have a truth-informed conscience, rather than just a conscience that's just kind of pre-programmed with whatever we learned when we were non-believers, but a, a truth-calibrated, truth-programmed conscience. So another question to loop back on when we go to break the discussion. Why is it so important to consider the background, that is the former associations, the level of understanding and the conscience sensitivity of those around you? And how do differences in each of these areas present opportunities to love fellow believers? In a little bit, you'll be able to loop back and talk about that at tables. But first, the third motivation for limiting Christian freedom, and that is the lack of need to exercise a freedom. Look at verse 8. Paul says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. He's not talking about like eating food in general. Like, yes, you need you are going to be worse off if you don't eat food. It's called starvation. But what he's talking about is specifically this type of consuming food that was once sacrificed to idols. You're not going to be somehow benefiting by eating this food that's purely physical, and you're not going to be somehow being harmed by eating the food that's purely physical. For those knowing that meat sacrificed to idols was just food, Eating it did not do anything that made them more or less spiritual. It was not necessary that they eat the meat sacrificed to idols. And the fact that it was not necessary, they didn't, they didn't need this. This wasn't helping them spiritually. That fact meant that they were free to not eat it. So on any issues of Christian freedom that you think through, that like, well, I have a right to be able to do that. Ask yourself, Will giving up this thing cost me anything in my walk with Christ? Am I growing in my relationship with the Lord by doing this thing? Is, is giving this up going to somehow make it so that I'm, I'm limited in my ability to honor the Lord? Well, then we're talking about a little bit different category here. But if this is something that you can give up for the sake of your brother, it's not going to hurt you, then that's one of the motivations for limiting Christian freedom is the lack of need to exercise that freedom. And fourthly, it's protection for my brother or my sister from stumbling. That motivates us to not take advantage of every freedom we might have. Verses 9 through 12 and then also in 13. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? to eat food offered to idols. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your 
brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. There's a little glimpse into the culture there. Meat wasn't there for every meal. Meat was kind of a more of a luxury. We enjoy meat with most meals here now. But then meat was a little bit of a rarity and one of the most common sources of meat in a culture like this would have been the meat that was resold after it had been sacrificed to idols. So it really is giving up something. It's, it's basically saying, Paul's saying, I'd be a vegetarian for the rest of my life if that meant it's not going to cause someone else to stumble. And for some of us, that might feel like more of a sacrifice than others. Interestingly, this, this point right here, protection for my brother or sister from stumbling, this is typically the only motivation that's apt to enter our minds when we think about limiting our freedom. I think this one is one that we all talk about regularly. It's like, oh, don't want to cause your brother to stumble. And that is a good, legitimate reason, but this passage is expanding it to say there's a lot of reasons why you might need to limit your freedom. So typically we think of this as the only motivation. It's not the only motivation. We are very familiar with the potential of causing our brother to stumble. Nevertheless, it is a real and a serious danger. It's not that this is just an inconsequential danger. In this category, specifically ask yourself, when, when faced with a question of Christian freedom, where I think it's fine for me to do this, but my friend is telling me that for him, that's, he's just not settled with it. He's, he's not sure. He's, I don't know if I can go see that movie here. I don't know if I can go to... Whatever it might be, there's a long list of potential things. Ask yourself, this is is supposed to read will, will me doing this activity present temptation for my brother or sister? Will not doing, saying, or watching this provide a layer of spiritual protection for my brother or sister by my example? By your example, you have the opportunity to potentially provide a layer of protection for your brother or sister as their conscience grows, as their former associations dissipate, as they're more and more instructed by the truth, you as the, in this case, stronger brother or sister have an opportunity to be a barrier of protection for this brother or sister. And then fifthly, this is protection for myself from sinning against Christ. And this is very serious. Verse 12 Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Wow. Christ accounts sin against his body, that is the church, his body, the church. He accounts those sins against his body as sins against himself. Two verses in Matthew highlight that, and the whole account is helpful. But Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So positively, those things done for someone, someone that is belonging to Christ. But then negatively, Matthew 25, 45, Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So both those things that are positive and negative, for or against the body of Christ, Christ reckons that he so closely associates with his people, his body, the church, that to sin against believers is to sin against Christ. 
If we do something to harm or jeopardize the soul health of our brother or sister, that is accounted as sin against our Savior. If we're hurting our brother or sister spiritually through our action, that's accounted as sin against Christ. That should be like exclamation marks, warning bells, I need to make sure I don't do something that's going to trip up my brother or sister in Christ. This highlights that Christian freedom is not simply vertical. It's not just between you and God. It's not just between me and Jesus. And it's also not simply horizontal. It's not, oh, this is just a matter of how I'm supposed to relate to others. It doesn't really have bearing on my walk with the Lord. No, both, both the vertical and the horizontal aspect of our relationships are impacted. It is both. So the last question for this section, and we'll break for some discussion. Why are we prone to forget that in causing someone else to stumble, we are actually sinning against Christ? And why does this motivation for limiting our freedoms, why is this motivation for limiting our freedoms so important to bear in mind? That should be, why is this motivation for limiting our freedoms so important to bear in mind? So momentarily we'll break to discuss those different questions that we hit along the way. But before that, I want to pause for questions, clarifications, and comments on the first part of our discussion this morning. Yes. Is that absolute? In other words, regardless of how weak a conscience is, if I, in Christian freedom, engage in something that violates a weaker conscience, it is always sin. I think the answer is no, but I can't point you anywhere right off the top of my head. My impulse is to answer that with, there are cases in which the urgent priority is on the teaching and training of a very immature believer. Like, rapidly, no, you need to realize that, whatever it might be, that that is not sin. That is not sin, you need to realize that. But, but I don't know, I don't have an immediate verse coming to mind that uh, clarifies that. Good question. Does anyone else have anything to add on to that, or do you have more to add on to that as you think through it? Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. I think there are definitely cases in which it's like, man, you're, you're digging like a, a hair-trigger conscience with something that's just like, how can I work with this? But then keeping that in mind with verse 12, if you sin against your brother by wounding their conscience when it is weak, and basically we're asking, okay, how weak? Like how weak is, how weak until it's just like too weak? You sin against Christ. So, whether that be I'm going to need to steer clear of this brother or sister for a while so that they don't, they don't get potentially tempted by what I'm doing or just urgently seek to train them with the truth of God's word and help them recalibrate their conscience. And I guess the, the, we'll get to it a little bit, but it's, is it something that I can sacrifice for the sake of this brother? If it's something that I truly cannot sacrifice, then it's, I don't, I don't have a specific category in mind for that, but if it's something that I can sacrifice for the sake of this person's conscience, then not sinning against Christ should make me willing to sacrifice anything I can. I mean, Paul's saying, I'll never eat meat again, is kind of the, the conclusion he comes to, if that's what it were to take. So, Good question. Other questions? Comments? Clarifications? All right, 
after we break, um, after we come back from discussions, we're going to get into chapter 9, which is really Paul applying this and illustrating this with his own life. But before that, take a few minutes to discuss those kind of different uh, discussion questions throughout the section we just looked at. So go ahead, take five, maybe ten minutes. All right. Hopefully your discussion at tables has been helpful in kind of bringing these things home and applying them specifically. I, just listening in on the specific examples of things that you guys have had to work through and think through in your own lives was cool to hear and listen through. Um, we're going to continue on in, in chapter 9. and The decision to do both 8 and 9 today was tricky, but I wish I could do 8, 9, and 10 today because they are all so connected together. But we won't make it quite that far today. The sixth motivation, as illustrated by Paul's example, for laying aside or giving up Christian freedoms is the motivation of removal of barriers to someone coming to faith in Christ. That's specifically found in verse 12 of chapter 9. But we're going to read the whole, the whole context of what he does here because Paul, in the process of presenting this motivation, he has this aside where he presents the case for his right to compensation, to basically receiving a salary, receiving money for preaching the gospel. And he, he makes a, a strong case for why that is okay and then says that he doesn't take advantage of it and why he doesn't take advantage of it. And that is going to be the removal of barriers to someone coming to faith in Christ. So, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this same rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So in this section, Paul uses 16 rhetorical questions to establish his right to receive payment for his ministry. 
He highlights his freedom. He highlights his apostleship. He highlights his witness to the resurrected Christ and his instrumentality, that is, God using him as an instrument in planting specifically the church in Corinth. He's saying, of all the people that should be supporting me, Corinth, you exist as a church because I came and preached the gospel to you. He says he had rights to eat and to drink, to marry and to refrain from working separately from his ministry work. He says he has, he has the right to not also make tents. And he illustrated this point with three examples that the Corinthians would have been familiar with. In verse 7, he points to soldiers who received salaries for the work that they do. They weren't doing secondary side jobs when they're fighting a war. He pointed to farmers receiving food from their field, and their field being their place of labor. And third, he points to shepherds receiving benefit from the flock that they tend. And then he scripturally defends his point. So he, first he uses illustrations and examples from their life that they'd realize, they'd understand, they get it, that makes sense. And then he points to scripture. First he points to Old Testament commands. He points to Deuteronomy 25, 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. He says, does, does God just care about animals? No, he's, he wrote this for our sake. Our being those that are laboring in preaching and teaching and the proclamation of the gospel. And then he illustrated the point again by plowmen and threshers who anticipate partaking in the fruit of their labors. So there's the Old Testament commandment, and then he later, later on in the section, he points to the Old Testament example, down in verse, four, uh, verse 13. He points to the Levites that ate some of the food from the sacrifices that were offered to the Lord. The sacrifices offered to the Lord, the Levites ate. That's how they survived. I remember when I was reading the Old Testament and that like first kind of light bulb went on in my mind and realizing like, because I just, you think of like sacrifices to the Lord in the Old Testament and things are getting burned up on the altar. But then you actually read the Old Testament and you realize like not all of them were totally burnt up on the altar and all these commands about the Levites taking a grain offering and eating it and it's for their family and taking other sacrifices and eating it and it's for their family. That was a big light bulb moment for me. I guess I never really stopped to think how the Levites were supposed to survive. But the Levites ate some of the food of the sacrifices offered to the Lord, and that was God's design in the law. So Old Testament command, Old Testament example, and then there's New Testament command. Jesus, uh, Paul points to a command of Jesus when he says in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 9, he says, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And you may ask, wait a second, where did, where did Jesus command that? He certainly may have commanded it multiple times throughout his ministry, but in Matthew 10, 9 through 10, Jesus gave the command to those that were getting ready to go out and proclaim the kingdom, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. So he's saying, don't bring food, don't bring money, just go proclaim the gospel. The laborer, the one doing the proclaiming there, deserves his food. So indicative of, okay, they're going to they're gonna eat something. It's assumed there, and especially with Paul's reference, that that's in reference to them receiving essentially compensation while they were on their missionary proclamational journey. And then fourthly, after a New Testament command, there's a New Testament example. Paul does not point to this in this section of 1 Corinthians, but I wanted to include it for the sake of kind of parallel ideas here. It's not cited by Paul in this passage, but 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, 
Um, you can look it up later, also explicitly links shepherding oversight, preaching, and teaching with Deuteronomy 25.4, which is what Paul had already referenced, that command in the Old Testament. And he does that to demonstrate the legitimacy specifically there of pastors receiving payment for their labors, specifically in reference to pastors, elders, those that shepherd and teach. So that's Paul's defense of why it's okay, why it's biblically normal, why it's it's even biblically expected that someone like Paul would be getting compensation for what he's doing. A discussion question as you reflect back on that that we'll, we'll loop back to later is, why do you think Paul so thoroughly defended the legitimacy of ministry workers getting paid for their work? What may have developed within Corinth if Paul had not taken the time to biblically defend the payment of gospel workers? So that's Paul's aside, his defense of why it's normal to receive compensation for ministry labors. But then in verse 12, again, that, that, what narrows it on, second half, nevertheless, we do not make use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So again, that sixth reason for laying aside Christian freedoms is the removal of barriers to someone coming to faith in Christ. But then the seventh, in verses 15 through 18, after he's just defended why it would be totally okay, the seventh reason is the reward of sacrificially serving others. The reward of sacrificially serving others in verses 15 through 18. 1 Corinthians 9, 15 through 18, we read, but I have not, uh, sorry, I have made no use of any of these rights nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. So he's not saying, I didn't just write that all so I could say, hey, could you guys pay me now? No. He says, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Pause there just to clarify. Boasting here is not necessarily what we think of as boasting as in like this prideful, arrogant, ha, look at me, I'm I'm this great. Boasting is, is glorying, reveling, enjoying. This, there can be a godly boasting, and that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. We'll get a little bit further into that. Verse 16, for, I, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. Basically, like I, God's telling me to preach no matter what. That doesn't change. I, I still have to proclaim the gospel. So what's, what's the difference? What then is my reward, verse 18? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So Paul's ground for boasting was maintained. He, he recognizes he, he has a ground for boasting if he doesn't receive payment, verses 15 through 16. Paul makes clear that he's not asking the Corinthians to start financially supporting him. Quote from Charles Hodge here on the, on the quote regarding, for it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void, or ground for boasting void. That is, deprive me of my ground of glorying. What enabled Paul to face his enemies with joyful confidence was his disinterested self-denial in preaching the gospel without reward. He had ground for glorying. He had ground for boasting. He was free of the potential accusation on this ground. 
But if he's if he shifted and said, you know, I, I think I will start accepting compensation from First Corinth or from the, the church in Corinth, then that would have been reopened for for the false teachers, for those that despised Paul to say, he's just in it for the money. He's just one of those prosperity guys. He's just there trying to, to fleece the flock. He's trying to take your money. You know Paul. Keep your wallets close when he's in town. No. If he had accepted payment from Corinth, those opposing him would have had a foot in the door to start accusing him of selfish motives. As it stood, Paul was able to clearly boast truly sacrificial and selfless motives. And I think, just an aside here, I think that highlights the normal, healthy relationship for pastors and their flock is one of love and trust. And where that clearly wasn't present in Corinth, things were breaking down. Paul wasn't able to receive what normally would have been his right because of those present that would have been accusing him, bringing things against him. The normal relationship of, between shepherds and the flock should be that of of love and, and mutual sacrifice and concern for one another and a recognition that we're, we're caring for one another in this. So that was clearly lacking in Corinth. Second point there is Paul's boasting or glorying was in self-sacrificial love for others. That drove him to not make advantage of his freedom, to not take advantage of his freedom. Another pro- quote from Hodge, Paul's reward was to sacrifice himself for others. He speaks of his being permitted to serve others gratuitously as a reward. If he'd accepted compensation, he would have been just as obligated to speak the gospel as before. That's what he says, I'm still under compulsion, I'm still under obligation. But he would have lost the ability to glory in the fact that he was purely sacrificially serving those to whom he preached. Paul's reward was preaching the gospel for free. And this illustrates, I think, situations in which foregoing the exercise of Christian freedoms and rights serves to be an opportunity to self-sacrificially serve others. If there are opportunities, as you think about your rights, things that you have a right to be able to do, but if there's an opportunity by not doing that thing that you're going to be able to serve someone else, benefit someone else spiritually, then that's an opportunity that a mature believer wants to take. To a mature believer, the opportunity to sacrificially forego a right for the benefit of others is a reward. Practically, I just, I think even of Christine, that we just heard her testimony, a little bit of what's going on over in Papua New Guinea, but really any global ministry workers sent to kind of frontline contexts in unreached people groups. We don't send them and say, hey, I hope it goes well, hope you can get enough money from the people over there. No, we send them fully supported so that when they're there, there's no confusion as to what they're there for. They are there to proclaim the good news. There are various, there are various contexts in which a gospel worker is enabled to have a more effective ministry by not receiving support from those that he or she is ministering to. Missions is a major context for this. When sending someone to an unreached people group, we actively seek to ensure that they go out fully supported so that they do not need to ask the people they're ministering to to pay for them. Furthermore, in places where intense hostility to the gospel is present or places where the prosperity gospel has absolutely decimated faithful gospel work, 
A missionary's decision to work another job alongside their ministry efforts allows for an additional layer of protection against accusation from false teachers and accusation against the gospel. So lastly, in verses 19 through 23, the last motivation for laying down Christian freedoms is maximum gospel fruitfulness. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23 reads, For though I am free from all, I'm free, he says, I'm free. I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Again, where law is used kind of just simple law without law of God or law of Christ. That's referring to the Mosaic law. We've talked about that previous weeks. The, the Jews would have been under the law, the Mosaic law. He's saying, I can, I can practice those things. I cannot practice those things. I'm free to do those things for the sake of reaching this person. Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. Again, weak consciences that I can't, I can't practice that thing. Paul's saying, sure, I'll go there. I'll, I'll not practice that. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. What a motivation to sacrifice our rights. Paul was eagerly willing to lay aside his rights so that he could best reach those around him. Christian freedom means we are freely able to lay down our freedoms to serve others. Christian freedom means we are freely able to lay down our freedoms to serve others. That is not the way we wave our banner of freedom here in America. Christian freedom is the ability to lay down a freedom for the sake of someone else. A key motivation for evangelism is that others may share in the blessings of the gospel. There's certainly the Godward motivation. God told us to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, proclaim the good news to the ends of the earth. And another motivation is that we want to have other people being able to share in the joy of the good news that we've come to embrace. The joy of having a relationship with our Savior. So a key motivation is that others may share in the blessings of the gospel, when we experience the blessings of the gospel, we long to have others invited in to the benefits of those blessings. Last question to discuss will be, Paul was deeply driven by the self-sacrificial desire to, to, by all means, save some, doing it all for the sake of the gospel. How does the priority of seeing those around you come to faith in Jesus Christ impact your daily decisions? How does it cause you to limit certain freedoms or rights so that you can best reach people around you. So just as we wrap up here and then break for those last couple discussion questions, I just want to highlight and, and emphasize that, yes, there are things that we have, quote-unquote, a right to do. We have a, a right to do things that aren't explicitly prohibited in Scripture. But as we think through those, as we think about motivations for why we might limit those rights, really think of it not as a, oh, man, there's so much potential for me to not be able to do the things I want to do, Rather think, there is so much potential for me to sacrificially love my brothers and sisters in Christ, 
receive the reward that Paul talks about, to care for, to help nurture the faith of those around me, to realize that it's not just me and Jesus, it's me and Jesus and his bride, the church, and he's placed me into it with the purpose of helping my brothers and sisters around me. So you may be wondering why we left off and didn't finish the last part of chapter 9. We'll, we'll pick it back up with verse 10. It's an important transitional statement. I just wanted to clarify that. I didn't forget that it was in there. And also point out that next week, read Matthew 21 through 22. Mike Ryder will be coming and speaking to us over the next two weeks. He's going to be talking about a day in the life of Jesus. Reading those two chapters, 21 and 22, I think will be really helpful for preparing you to think through everything that Mike's going to be teaching us on. So just recommend reading that um, over this week, and that'll help prepare you. So I'll close us in prayer, and then you can break for those last two discussion questions. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to be able to dig into your word, and we thank you for the freedom we have in Christ, that we're no longer under the law. We don't have to observe the Old Testament statutes that um, related to how your people, Israel, were to relate to you. But Lord, help us to steward that freedom, to recognize that we are under the law of Christ and the law of love is to be governing all that we do. Lord, as we relate to others that are different than us, though saved all the same, though trusting in Christ all the same, still working through differences of background, differences of conscience, sensitivity, differences of knowledge, Lord, help us to be gracious with those around us, to be loving towards those around us, and to see these as opportunities, not just um, limitations. So help us, Lord, to be joyful in this, and do please bless the remaining discussion that we have this morning. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.